a warning that today's podcast deals with mental health issues and talks about suicide. Lauren Dickerson is accused of murdering her six-year-old and two-year-old twins within weeks of the family arriving from South Africa. The 42-year-old admits killing the children but is mounting a defence of insanity and infanticide. Maternal mental health is in the spotlight thanks to the Lauren Dickerson murder trial. And as awful as the vehicle for it is, it's about time we talked about it. Along with periods, endometriosis and menopause, it's an issue that for too long has been hidden under the cloak of women's health issues. I'm Alexia Russell and today on The Detail, a podcast of two parts. First, we're going to look at the law around infanticide and then we'll talk about postnatal depression. What is it? Who's most likely to get it? And why there's some hope on the horizon for treating it? Chris Gledhill is a legal academic at the Auckland University of Technology. He teaches criminal law and has a particular interest in the overlap between law and mental health matters. He's written a piece for The Conversation spelling out what infanticide means. So the first thing is it doesn't mean killing an infant. It's got a much more complex and legalistic meaning. Um, So it's an offence which can only be committed by a woman. It has to involve a child of that woman uh, who is under the age of 10 years. It has to be something which would otherwise be murder or manslaughter. But, and here's the kind of central provision for it, it has to involve the woman having, in the words of the statute, the balance of her mind being disturbed by reason of not having fully recovered from the effect of giving birth, or by reason of the effect of lactation, or by reason of any disorder consequent upon childbirth or lactation, to such an extent that she should not be held fully responsible. So it's a series of questions which involves, uh, for the jury to decide, which involves there being proper medical evidence that there is some sort of uh, mental disorder, that it's consequent on childbirth, lactation, or the effects of uh, of that. Uh, And then this evaluative judgment by the jury that um, uh, the mental disorder is to such an extent that uh, full responsibility for the killing is not an appropriate response from the criminal justice system. So infanticide is a partial defence to homicide, a claim in essence that the defendant had diminished responsibility. Infanticide is the only charge in New Zealand where you can claim diminished responsibility. Other countries, including the UK, have developed it as a partial defence in murder or manslaughter cases where there are mental health issues. And basically it's um, it's a halfway house between uh, full insanity, which is there and leads to a, uh, this special verdict, which used to be called not guilty by reason of insanity, and now in New Zealand is called acts proven but not responsible on account of insanity. Uh, But that's a a pretty high bar to meet, is the insanity test. Dickerson is also using a defence of insanity. 
if the disorder is worse and amounts to insanity in law, then we get on to language which kind of dates back to 18, the 1840s, which is where the, the test for insanity that we currently have in New Zealand, where that originates. Now, um, the origin of infanticide as a separate offence is slightly later than the, the standard defence of insanity. And it comes about really because the insanity test is actually quite difficult to get to. Um, but it was found uh, for all sorts of reasons, not really suitable to be executing women who'd killed their children. So to avoid the extremities of the death penalty, which of course is the used to be the mandatory sentence for murder, uh, there's the creation then of this separate offence called infanticide based on um, a diminished responsibility aspect to it, which allows the court to enter a conviction for something other than murder uh, and therefore avoid um, what used to be the consequence of a murder conviction, namely uh, the death penalty. How difficult is this to prove? Do you have to be, for example, have been treated for a mental health disorder after the birth of your children? Um, no. So what what's required is a proper psychiatric evidence. And to get the psychiatric evidence about the state of somebody's mind at the time, it's always much more reliable is that evidence if it's um, if it's involved somebody who's been treated very, very soon after um, the homicide has occurred or who's been treated before the homicide occurs. So that goes to the quality of the evidence, not the requirement of it. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be more difficult to prove if you don't have contemporaneous medical evidence that somebody has the relevant disorder, that its origin is childbirth, lactation, etc. And of course, that you know, some um, some psychiatrists find that slightly controversial. Why? Um, simply because there's some uh, some evidence around or some viewpoints around that it kind of uh, pathologizes childbirth in a way that is inappropriate. I'm just saying that there are some people who question um, the the. Uh, the use of infanticide. I, I'm perfectly happy with it from my perspective, because if there are doctors who come along and say these things exist, then, you know, that's what should be evaluated by the court. Doctors, of course, do say these things exist, but just as importantly, women are starting to speak up about having experienced it, including some very high profile women. Adele admits to suffering from postpartum depression after giving birth to her son, Angelo James, four years ago. The Hello singer telling the magazine, I had really bad postpartum depression after I had my son, and it frightened me. And it just goes to show it can affect anyone, postnatal depression. It doesn't matter yeah. how rich, famous, successful you are, it can come get you. No control over it. One in mm. ten women or more are affected by this within the first year of childbirth. And, you know, it's devastating when it happens. You really feel in such a lonely place. You don't want to talk to anybody about it, as Adele said. What help does a jury get during a trial to decide if a woman should not be held fully responsible, as you say, because of the extent to which the balance of her mind was disturbed from the effects of childbirth, lactation or any disorder caused by childbirth or lactation? 
the assistance they will get is from the closing speeches of the uh, prosecution and the defense. And then the judge will give them directions on what the law is and what it means. Um, and then it's over to, to the jury to kind of fit the evidence to the directions they've got. The judge will give them uh, a, a question trail is, is, is how we describe it, which will give them steps to think about as to how they reach their verdict, because they've you know, they're going to have alternatives here. Uh, is it insanity? Is it infanticide? If it's neither in, insanity or infanticide, um, then is it murder or is it manslaughter? So it's a complex um, trail that the jury's going to have to go through. A lot of parents post-childbirth get the baby blues, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is about intense postnatal depression. The, the real problem as to where the line is, the, is that it's incredibly subjective in the language of the statute. So, you, you know, like I read out to you, uh, the jury has to find that the effect um, of the what they've, if they find that there's a mental disorder based on the medical evidence, the effect is that it goes to such an extent that she should not be held fully responsible. Well, you know, what does that mean? Um, where's the line to be drawn there? So it, it is an incredibly evaluative judgment by the jury. Uh, it also means, for example, that two completely differently constituted juries could reach different verdicts on the basis of the same evidence because of the lack of uh, certainty in the way that the law is drafted. Well, you talk about two different juries could come up with two different answers, but two different psychologists could also come up with two different views, could they not? Yeah, exactly. Psychologists and psychiatrists are um, probably as bad as lawyers in the sense that if you put two of them together, you're going to get three different opinions about a particular factual situation. Uh, and clearly, if you, you know, on the reports that are coming through from the Dickerson trials, uh, there's a whole host of expert witnesses giving evidence. Uh, they clearly don't agree with each other on everything, uh, which is going to leave the jury in that position of trying to work out uh, which one of the psychiatrists and psychologists has, um, has got an accurate um, description of what was going on in Mr. Dickerson's head at the time that she committed these uh, killings. I was at such a, a point of overwhelm and stress that I couldn't, I wasn't functioning as a rational person. It was completely unexpected. You know, I started um, to have these panicked thoughts. Um, I was very paranoid. I changed as a person. You know, I wasn't the happy mom, happy life person. It was quite the opposite. I was afraid, worried about how people would view me if I had opened up and talked about what I was going through as a mom. There just seems to be a stigma around it, which is a real pity because this is the time of a woman or birthing parent's life when, you know, they really need the support. And to be undergoing depression or anxiety or other forms of distress can be really, really hard. There are so many, you know, changes happening um, to this person. Um, the whole family dynamic has changed. They're suddenly in charge of a brand new human being. And, you know, it's very overwhelming. 
Dr. Felicia Lowe leads Koitu's Knowledge Hub for Maternal and Child Health at the University of Auckland, and she's our expert on postnatal depression. There is some awareness, and it has been growing in recent years, but I think that there's still a huge amount that people need to learn about the condition and uh, what can be done about it. Is it just those feelings of being overwhelmed and of change and a new person coming into your life, or... Is it partly caused by some sort of chemical imbalance or, you know, when you're, after you've given birth, your body changes? How much of that is a factor? So it is a combination of all those factors. So there are definitely um, lots of hormonal changes happening um, during pregnancy and even after birth. So, um, for example, during pregnancy, there is a huge um, dramatic surge in estrogen and progesterone and um Basically, almost immediately after birth, the levels drop uh, quite dramatically as well. And that, that, so these are huge changes that are, the woman is experiencing. But also at the same time, like I said, it can be very overwhelming to be suddenly, you know, holding this brand new baby and, you know, feeling all this, this sense of responsibility for a brand new life and not knowing how things might happen. And of course, you know, throw in the fact that, you, you know, you've just given birth, it's been exhausting and tiring. And yeah, it's easy to imagine how it can all feel really overwhelming. But there is a difference between the baby blues and postpartum depression. So baby blues, yes, you do tend to feel um, a low mood or maybe mood swings. Uh, you may be crying for no reason. Um, you know, it's lots of very heightened emotions. Uh, but baby blues tend to resolve by themselves over some time. So uh, maybe uh, up to one or two weeks, for example. But postpartum depression involves much more severe symptoms. So everything is heightened and they, mu- they last much longer as well. And if you recognize that that is what is actually going on, then that's when you really need to seek help. So what is the pivot point? How do you know that this is just not normal? Well, generally, if about two weeks after birth, if you're still feeling all those symptoms of um, distress, that's probably when uh, you may be suffering from postpartum depression. Is there some kind of genetic predisposition? Can we predict which women are going to be perhaps hit by this? There is some evidence out there that there are certain genes or certain forms of genes that may put a woman at greater risk of developing uh, postpartum depression, but we don't know too much about the the details and exactly how that works. But what we do know puts uh, women at risk of developing postpartum depression is some very deep societal issues. So we're talking about systemic inequities like poverty. That's a big one. So whether it's a lack of housing or housing instability, food insecurity, racism, maybe experiencing family violence or just having a lack of education. And a very important one is a lack of social support. These factors can all really put a woman at greater risk. And also, um, perhaps some experiences that happened um, during pregnancy, uh, such as um, having complications happening during pregnancy or having a a difficult or traumatic birth, um, or even having an infant that is, you know, particularly temperamental, you know, might not be feeding well or sleeping well, these can all really compound um, 
the issues that I mentioned before. I mean, why is this in society? It's quite quite. I mean, you know, lately we've been seeing issues like periods, menopause, endometriitis, all issues that are starting to come out from underneath the cloak of embarrassment, if you like. Is this another one of those issues? Yes, quite possibly. I mean, it's really great that we're seeing a lot more talk, you know, openness around, yeah, periods and uh, period products and, you know, using the terms more openly as well. Um, Yeah, and I think there's definitely some way to go still for postpartum depression. I've heard figures anything from um, 1 in 7 to 1 in 10 people might go through this. Do we know what the figures are for New Zealand? Yes, for New Zealand women, about 1 in 7 women, about 15% of women will experience uh, postpartum depression. Um, But we do know that some ethnic groups may be be at greater risk. So, for example, Maori or Pacific or Asian women may actually, um, you know, experience a higher rate of um, depression either during pregnancy or after birth. The leading cause of death for women who are pregnant or have just given birth is suicide. Our rate is seven times higher than the UK's with wahine Māori making up a whopping 57% of all maternal suicides. Depression is often a silent struggle for new mums. More than one in five Pacifica mothers in New Zealand experience anxiety or depression during or soon after pregnancy. That's the highest rate of perinatal depression in the country. But women of Pacific descent have low rates of assessing maternal mental health support. We've got a generation of young women that are growing up in a New Zealand context who don't have the traditional supports of their homeland but have already experienced significant amounts of psychological distress growing up here in New Zealand that are much more vulnerable to potential mental health issues during and post-pregnancy. Is that because of societal factors? Most likely, most likely, yes. And how do we know those figures are accurate if, if a lot of women don't speak up about them? Yes, so that's a very good question. So these figures are quite likely to be an underestimate. So, uh, you know, the true number, nobody will really know for sure, but it is likely to be higher than one in seven. What happens when you ask for help? Um, I think that's the most important step you can do for yourself and your baby. Um, Because by looking after yourself, you are much better equipped to be able to look after baby. And I think that women should realise that, you know, there should be no hesitation if they feel that there's something not quite right. You know, they've been experiencing low mood. You, You may not even think it's severe, but if you feel something's not right, reach out. To it could be the well child provider, um, your lead maternity carer. So for most women, that would be their midwives mm-hmm. um, or their GP. Um, you know, these um, people would be able to refer them on to the appropriate services for help. Because You're, there are drugs that can help, aren't there? There are now drugs that can help, yes. So very recently, um, the FDA in the U.S. just approved this drug. The FDA has officially approved the first ever pill for postpartum depression, which affects one in eight new mothers. This pill could be a game changer because it works fast, it's accessible, and it's easy to take. It's a synthetic version of this steroid that's derived from progesterone, the hormone. So in women with low levels of the steroid, it's called allopregnenolone. Uh, women with low levels of the steroid are at greater risk of developing postpartum depression. 
and they've uh, conducted trials and found that it's made a huge difference in women with severe postpartum uh, depression. So this is a really big um, advance because prior to that, there was just one drug um, available for postpartum depression, but and it's also developed by the same company, but that was delivered as an IV infusion over 60 hours. So you had to go into hospital for You that. had to. It's an inpatient stay. So, and obviously, if you're caring for a newborn, you're not going to just be able to drop everything and go into the hospital. So this new pill will be make it much more accessible to you know a wider proportion of the population. Is that, I mean, it won't be available in the US, what, till the end of the year? But so goodness knows when we'll see it. I mean, is yes, that on the agenda yes. to bring I'm, it here? Uh, I would certainly hope so because... Um, I imagine that, you know, a lot of women may be very um, hopeful that it is available should they need it. But having said that, um, there are other options available for treatment. We do know that um, things like counselling or cognitive behavioural therapy, these sorts of interventions can be very helpful too. Well, I presume also addressing the issues that led them down the path in the first place. Absolutely. So really, we can't just look at, you know, prescribing a pill or, or going to counselling without actually addressing the social determinants of health that I talked about earlier, you know, poverty, um, food insecurity, family violence, and isolation, so on. Isolation, even? Isolation, absolutely. So isolation, the lack of social support, you know, we do know that um, a huge risk factor for developing postpartum depression is having experienced depression during pregnancy. And in turn your risk of developing uh, depression during pregnancy is dependent on experiencing depression before pregnancy. So this can all, you know, track across the the whole um, process of pregnancy and birth. And so if you have, you know, prior experience of mental distress, mental illness, then it may be worth um, sort of keeping a close eye on your feelings and thoughts and how you are doing after birth. Um, These are all factors that really, really can determine whether it sort of pushes a woman over the edge and into developing Mm. postpartum depression. What would you like to be done? What what would you like to see? The first first steps of trying to address this issue, where do we start? I think raising awareness of the issue, the possible impacts um, on both mum, baby, and, you know, the partner and wider family is just so important because we need to build a support system around the family. And to do that, we need help from everyone else, um, whether it's friends, the wider family, um, all, you know, supporting them like, the, like a village. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, the very common saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's a proverb for a reason, because that's the best way to help new parents to, you know, overcome the difficulties in the early months, weeks and months of the child's life. And, you know, um, while they're still finding their feet on how to be parents. If this podcast has raised issues for you, we've put links to helplines and other sources of information on RNZ and Newsroom's web pages. 
The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Chris Gledhill and Dr Felicia Lowe. Ka kite anō. Music